Hello, podcast listeners. This is Chris Baldus, editor of the Charles City Press. Today I'm presenting to you an interview that I conducted on Halloween with Congressman Steve King, who dropped by the press office. Unfortunately, it's too late for me to really do anything in print with this because I'm not going to publish a, a political story right before the day before election, and our next uh, edition is coming out on Monday. So here it is, my uh, unblemished uh, recording of the interview with the congressman. Please forgive me, I'm not a radio guy, so you're going to have to listen right through my stumbling questions. Thank you very much. Bye. Going into this next term, what are you going to do for Floyd County? What are you going to do for my town or city, oh, okay. city here? Well, that would presume that I'm going to have another term, but uh, it feels pretty good. Okay. So, you know, I'll just speak to that for a moment. And uh, here's how I would describe what's happened and, and where we need to go. Okay. But um, you know, I've been I've been involved in the agriculture renewables fuels renewable fuels side of this thing for a long time, mm-hmm. and uh, it takes me clear back into the '70s when mm-hmm. some of the first foundational uh, proposals were coming mm-hmm. forth, and uh, I see what that has done for us. And over the last 10 or 12 years, mm-hmm. it's been the best decade, a little more than a decade, to, mm-hmm. to be in Iowa, to, to live mm-hmm. in Iowa. And it, it's been tied to the profitability that we've had in agriculture. And the ag profitability would have changed significantly if we pulled renewable fuels out of that equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so oh. we've gone from $60 billion was what the total value of ag land was sometime after I went to Congress to the last Iowa State number I'm seeing was $266 billion. Mm-hmm. That's just the value of the ag land that, that's dirt. Mm-hmm. That's not property, plant, equipment, cash, you know, those things, grain in the bin. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just the dirt. So we have this, we've had this tremendous appreciation of our capital, mm-hmm. accumulation and appreciation of capital. Mm-hmm. That foundation has, hopefully we don't, I mean, I don't think we'll, we'll use it all up, but it's there uh, to be a cushion when you have the downtimes. Mm-hmm. And right now we've got some times that are turning the other way. The profitability mm-hmm. isn't what it was a year ago or two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we've yeah, got, particularly we've got the, uh, the, got the corn prices are dropping. and uh, 60%. Yeah, and so high. and so when you you're going as a farmer and your 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 valuation on your property obviously has gone up, and which is which is nice until you get a tax bill. Yes. So, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I can understand where, you, where you're going with that. But, but the reason the reason the land prices have gone up because there's been profitability there, mm-hmm. and because and a lot of that land's paid for, mm-hmm. a lot of the equipment's paid for. So, and I had a I had a constituent come to me here about a year ago. And he delivered to me a problem that I hadn't been confronted with before. It was, he says, I have all my land paid for, all my mm-hmm. equipment paid for. I've got cash in the bank. I've got the inputs for the next year or more that I can pay up front. And I've got my machine sheds built where I can store my collector's items in it, mm-hmm. like tractors and cars mm-hmm. and those kind of things. And he said, I can't afford to buy any land because no land is coming up for sale. I mm-hmm. can't buy it. It's too high, and it's not coming up for sale. Mm-hmm. And he said, I have this huge tax liability. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, I really haven't been confronted with such a terrible problem before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, there's some other priorities we're going to be working on, and that one is not the highest one. Mm-hmm. In, other, in other words, though, you know, when you think about people that are Let's, let's say economically destitute. If I take mm-hmm. us back to the farm crisis years of the '80s, mm-hmm. when everybody, most everybody, was in a terrible shape, mm-hmm. I look at those accomplishments that have come along the way, and the foundation has taken us to the point where we are. Mm-hmm. I never really imagined I'd be working on a problem of somebody that had that had that that the scope of that problem was 
I've got all I need, but I don't know what to do with my money. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was, and so, but it's you know it's turned the other way since then. This is a little over a year ago, mm-hmm. and now you know we've got tighter cash flows. You asked in the beginning, you know, what are we going to do for Floyd County? Mm-hmm. Um, one is we we have already put in place a pretty good farm bill, okay. and you have a lot of producers here that are that are row crop, and the mm-hmm. row crop producers need this farm bill are the ones we. We took, you know, treated the best, and uh, if we can keep that a good risk management program in place uh, to keep our producers up and running, then, you know, then then that new wealth that comes from the land finds its way from the from the farm to the farm home to the town to the city, and we value add to that as close to the land as we can, mm-hmm. and that helps Floyd County. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is that, you know, I have to work with national policy, and if mm-hmm. I if I tweak a national policy that would be uh, county specific, that would mm-hmm. be an earmark. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am—I think we have a constitutional authority to do that, but they are essentially have been blocked out by the rules. Mm-hmm. And because of John McCain, Barack Obama's agreement as they ran for president in 2008, and John Boehner mm-hmm. uh, and, and Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, they've, they've ended the earmark side of this, at least, at least in this era. Mm-hmm. So... Um, we're going to, I'm going to continue to try to push for policies that keep our taxes low and hopefully can reduce some regulation that's coming at us. Mm-hmm. And that will help our producers and every all of the business people and entrepreneurs here mm-hmm. in Floyd County. Now, of course, Guitaro uh, City itself, you've been, you've been to our, our industry that we have here. Do um, you know anything out there that, uh, that you're working on that is going to help, uh, help out that, uh, that base here in town? Hmm. And I don't know what issues they, they would really have. I'm just you've been out there to them. You've mm-hmm. you've toured the places. I have. And so you know we built that network. And, and if things come up that they are concerned about, they'd mm-hmm. like to have me work on. You know, we've got a communications network built so that you know we can talk with them and uh, I think they're confident they'll pick up the phone and call. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Okay. That's part of the reasons for the visits is so that they're and I'm confident that'll be the case. Okay. But. If they're if they're operating fine without too much government intrusion and mm-hmm. and, and they're profitable, let's encourage that and keep that going. Okay. Uh, you know, my my job is when whenever I try to change something at the national level, it affects people in sometimes in all states. So I have to be careful that we don't create unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, I think that you know, we've had a administration we continue to have an administration that's overreached mm-hmm. and that has overregulated and it's made it harder and harder for business to make money and when it's harder for business to make money there are fewer jobs and the pay and the benefit package are lower although the uh, uh, although the wall street is is going gangbusters we have uh, corporations out there with record cash just sitting in their uh, sitting in their vaults if you will mm-hmm. um, so that part of the economy does not seem to be hurt by uh, by those regulations and such they wrote the recovery plan in Wall Street. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the people from Wall Street and the representatives that the, that the White House plugged in place to write the recovery plan. And I'm not convinced it's a recovery. It's it's a slow recovery for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, Wall Street took care of itself. And mm-hmm. uh, here's something that I just uh, put this into your ear, that sometime in early 2007, and that seems like a long time ago now when Doesn't I look it? at the year, but uh, sometime in early 2007, there, the subprime mortgage issue was emerging. Mm-hmm. And um, I host a breakfast every Wednesday morning. I mm-hmm. chair the Conservative Opportunity Society. And I've shared that for quite a number of years. 
so I bring in usually high-profile, big-name speakers. Mm-hmm. And they aren't always big-name, but they aren't always high-profile. Sometimes they're leading thinkers that haven't yet emerged on the public mm-hmm. stage. And we try to empower those kind of people. Mm-hmm. But um, I had an investment banker in before the calamity, early 2007. And he had been an investment banker for 30 years. And he mm-hmm. said, subprime mortgages, what you do when you're in this business is pretty much what everybody else does. Mm-hmm. That way, if they're making money, you're making money. And if things fall apart and there is a bailout, mm-hmm. you'll be bailed out with the rest of them. When I heard that, I've mm-hmm. got the notes on it. I can go find mm-hmm. it. But when I heard that, I didn't have enough to go review those notes. It just it just really branded itself in mm-hmm. my memory um, because I realized that the bankers were taking significant risks. The investment bankers were taking significant risks, and they believing all along that if they overextended themselves and there was a meltdown, mm-hmm. that the taxpayers would bail them out. Mm-hmm. They were they were betting on that. Mm-hmm. As they as they stretched themselves beyond the limits of what was prudent, and sure enough, that's what happened. Too big to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, too big to be allowed to fail, and they knew they were going to take it out of the taxpayers, and they did. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's talk about the future for taxpayers here uh, for, for a second. Uh, the the students, the student loans, the uh, th- that entire issue. Um, obviously, we. Uh, you know, we're very concerned about our, our kids uh, here getting ready, going off into into college or the community or the trade schools or whatever they are. Um, and what was that? A new report came out uh, this week. Don't know who it was from. Talking about um, you know more kids living living at home just because of the student debt situation, which hopefully my kids are going to move out. <laughs> so. Yes, uh, <laughs> we managed to convince ours to do that. And we managed to convince them not to move very far. Yes. <laughs> so I have the best of all, all worlds there. But uh, student loan, and, and uh, I, I stood and opposed it and fought it, that uh, there was a takeover of the student loan by the federal government. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was driven by George Miller from mm-hmm. when, the, when Nancy Pelosi was speaker. Mm-hmm. George Miller was the chair of the Education Workforce Committee. Mm-hmm. And uh, he drove legislation that would... Uh, that that essentially eliminated the private sector competition from the student loan program. Mm-hmm. So now it's 100% government-run, mm-hmm. and they're taking a profit off of the interest rates that are paid. Mm-hmm. I have to go back and look at it to tell you what the rationale was, but sometimes they have to move a bill that, that scores at you know, mm-hmm. zero, uh, that, that, that it's not going to increase the debt, national debt, mm-hmm. or um, no cost to the taxpayer. So they will write a bill that will offset. You know, they want to spend more money on something. As my recollection is, that mm-hmm. the student loan is, was written so that they could take some profit from that and mm-hmm. use it to offset expenses, expenditures that they were increasing someplace else on the ledger. And I don't remember what that specific thing was. Mm-hmm. But there's a margin that's being drawn down off the student loan, off the interest rate by the federal government. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, I'm for let's let all the let's let many the reliable bankers get in here and and invest in the student loan program and let the interest rates compete against the federal government. But and and, and you probably know this. I'm sure you know this better. And my my impression is okay. The this is not a new issue. Hmm? This is a growing issue. This is uh this is an issue that uh, that predated that change that uh, basically got the uh, banks, which were acting as middlemen in that whole loaning process. Moved them out, so it's. I, I guess I couldn't see it all being 
this issue being settled on on that one move. And of course, there's other the state legislature, not state states, cutting back on what they're uh, putting into their land-based, uh, you know, universities and, and those kind of things. So obviously, there's there's a lot of issues there to, because the tuition isn't going up. But is there is there something more that the, the federal government can be doing or should be doing or or working with uh, some partners to make something happen? Well, here's what I tell the students, and, and that is. The very first and best thing you can do if you're concerned about your student loan, and you should be concerned mm -hmm. about it, is uh, do a good job of be a, be, do a good job as a consumer, mm -hmm. and go shopping around to these universities and colleges, and see where you can get the best bang for your tuition dollar. Mm -hmm. That's that's one thing. Second thing I tell them is that you know if we can we could get your interest rates down to zero. We could give you a zero interest rate student loan, but I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> see, and uh, but the problem with that is, is that uh, then we borrow the money from China to pay the interest rate down on the student loan, and there's not a restraint on the borrowing because uh, why wouldn't you borrow all the money you could if, if you could, it, just a low interest rate, let alone a free interest rate? Mm -hmm. or, you know, I'm going to free is is pretty unlikely. But uh, so we sit here. And the data I see shows an average student uh, graduates with about $24,000 in debt. Mm -hmm. And then, but there, that money is, so we could buy that all down mm -hmm. and borrow the money from the Chinese, put it in there. Now these students will get a chance to start fresh, but the difficulty with that is they're going to pay it anyway. Mm -hmm. They're going to pay it in the form of, of the interest on our national debt when they pay their income tax. Mm -hmm. So we have, uh, say, if $24,000 is the average student loan, mm -hmm. and um, I have a little grandson that's born six weeks ago, Mm -hmm. And uh, his share of the national debt was fifty-six thousand dollars, and that, you know, no degree comes with that. Mm -hmm. uh, just plain uh, congratulations, you're a new American citizen, and you're going to get to pay the interest and principal on fifty-six thousand dollars. And so, I tell the students, it's kind of like the old Fram. They won't remember this, but the old Fram oil filter commercial: you can pay me now, or you can pay me later. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the paying later is run up the national debt in order to try to keep the interest rates down. Mm -hmm. the, the, the hardest ones to deal with are, what about those students that have significant student loans and don't end up with a degree? Mm -hmm. All those that will drop out in the last year or the last two years. Then they've got, they've got debt and no sheepskin to help them convert their mm -hmm. education into dollars. So I'm troubled by that. But honestly, you know, if people have a four-year degree, Mm -hmm. And they step out of college with a twenty-four year, twenty-four thousand dollars student loan debt, mm -hmm. and they owe Uncle Sam fifty-six thousand dollars. I'm a lot more troubled by the national debt, the per capita national debt, than I am the per pupil student loan debt. Mm -hmm. The uh, this this issue has often been talked about in just that that student loan um, aspect. You know what's what's caused what what kids are are you know borrowing for for this. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, there's the end. The prices keep going up. The prices at these at the at public uh, universities, you know, the you know, which rely on uh, federal state funding. I mean, they're they're all tapping into those kind of things. I mean, is there another way to come at this issue? Well, I mean, I always say and, and, ideas. Uh, I, I the the competition side of this thing. That's the, that's the best idea that you know that I can come up with. But if tuition is going to be a certain amount, you're going to have since the money to pay that's got to come from somewhere. Now, yes, we have grants. Uh, we have Pell Grants and, mm -hmm. and other programs there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I've been very supportive of keeping those things uh, funded and valid. Uh, so, you know, a student can put together their, their Pell Grants and Stafford and those kind of uh, those kind of programs, and use those to you know essentially buy down the premium, buy down the uh, the tuition. Mm-hmm. So it's a cheaper education, and most students can figure out how to get that education if they want it. Mm-hmm. What well, what I found interesting lately, you've I'm sure you. What the Regents University here has, have, have gone through, they uh, they had that they've done that study, looking they hired that person to look into uh, efficiencies in the university, uh, and I'm it has me thinking. Okay, you if the federal government is giving all like, the Pell grants and and whatnot to these universities, there's a certain amount of uh, requirement that they get put on these on universities to do those kind of things. And I guess what I'm getting at, is there oversight? Is there oversight at the universities from the federal level to, because if it's not, if there's no political will on the state level to push this stuff, is, can it come from the, would it come from the, or is it coming from the Boy, the federal level? I would rather see it be at the state level. Mm-hmm. It's the closer we can get to home with the government that can do the job, the more efficient it's going to be, okay. and the more compassionate and responsive it's going to be. Okay. So, you know, short of specific issues uh, that one might need to deal with, and, and recently, in the last few weeks, I haven't heard of them, mm-hmm. and then I think we're better off not to not to dig into that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But if there are good ideas out there, I'd like to hear those good ideas. I just, I just think we don't get very many big things done between now and at least the next Congress. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's not been a, all that productive of a Congress. Well, we've sent some 381 bills over to Harry Reid's desk that went into his desk drawer, and they're still there. Okay. Well, we're sending them on over there, but, I mean, there's, uh, you know, generally when you're working in a team, which, you know, there's there has to be some way to uh, to get work done, you know, whether that's the personalities involved in the, uh, in the entire thing or it just has to be somebody who steps forward and, and makes things starting to get done one way or another. See any light on the uh, on the uh, in the horizon? Anything that uh, you can do to help push us along? Well, I had a significant hand in helping to push along the border security legislation mm-hmm. that passed on August first, and uh, we passed a pretty good farm bill in the middle of all of the gridlock that we heard so much about. Mm-hmm. So there are two things that I had both hands in all the way. I spent about three and a half years on the farm bill, mm-hmm. trying to get a bill passed that would. Uh, you know that would be a foundation for our producers, so that so they had a good risk management program and and some of those pieces. That was um, I don't know if it was really if it was really gratifying to do that because by the time we finally got there, when any euphoria that would have existed because of the accomplishment was burned off by the degree of difficulty. Yeah. And so so I, I don't know if people talk about that very much, but yeah, just, I use this description if. Um, if you're going to go out, if, you're, if we were sitting here in, in the Himalayas and you look out there and see those 26,000-foot mountain peaks going along, mm-hmm. and you think, boy, wouldn't that be great to climb a mountain in the Himalayas? Mm-hmm. And uh, that seems great by time until you get to the top of the mountain, and then you're so shelled out from the price of getting there that I see yeah. the picture of somebody standing on the summit, and they're all just basking in the glory of God's creation. And I'm thinking, I climb that mountain. I'm not. I'm going to be so bleary-eyed. I won't be able to see. Well, the photo was right before they fall over. 
I think it is. I mean, there's, there's, there's no question that you guys have, have uh, difficult jobs up there. It's yeah. not a job that I would want. It, which always surprised me. <laughs> you guys keep running for these things, and you're dealing with the, with a lot of strong personalities, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and even a humble guy like me has to have an ego if I'm going to be yeah, able to compete. You know, it's good. It's good that you're humble. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> My wife challenges that, though. She is, I need more and more humility, and that's why I have you, dear. Yes, yes, <laughs> she provides it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, th- there was one other topic I wanted to uh, jump into, and, and that's, that's of course uh, that's. Uh, the foreign affairs. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I really do want to go back. Just I, okay. I, I, yeah, sure. I don't think I quite finished on the, um, the, you know, what what can I lend my hand to that gets things done in the middle of this partisan gridlock that we have. I like the way you put it better than I did. Well, okay, but I didn't remember how. But anyway, um, the farm bill was when it was three and a half years in the trenches working that out. And you know, I, I go across and I work with people on the other side. You know, mm-hmm. people like Colin Peterson and. And um, you know, other Democrats, we, we resolved the issues that we didn't didn't disagree on, mm-hmm. and got those written into the bill well before it ever came to the floor. And then mm-hmm. the disagreeable issues are the ones that people heard about. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a significant bipartisan uh, accomplishment that um, you know to a, that I that I had a lot of involvement in. Uh, next thing and most recent is the border security bill mm-hmm. that we passed in the House on August first, and uh, that was a that's a bill that. Um, I had I had drafted the things that I thought should be in a border mm-hmm. security bill. I had offered some of them in amendments in previous years, within the last couple three years, and they had actually they'd passed, but they didn't, of course, get past the Senate. Mm-hmm. And then leadership wrote a border security bill, but it didn't do what we wanted it to do, and it actually didn't do what they what they said it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had a conference meltdown. And I use that as a kind of a shorthand, but yeah. we we reached the end of our ability to try to get a border security border security bill passed, and uh, people were ready to give up. And right in that in that pause, right before the gavel came down that we adjourned in, in conference, I stepped up to the microphone and and I said, and I hadn't spoken the whole time; I only listened. And at the end, and, and I said that you know that that we had we had we we know what we want the legislation to say. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and go to work and, and now draft the bill that actually does what we say we want it to do rather than have to argue about a bill that doesn't do what we say what I want it to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew what the changes were because I brought them all, but just the night before, uh, leadership had blocked my effort to bring them as amendments to the bill that day. Mm-hmm. And then their bill failed. I mean, it was they didn't have the votes and they had to pull it down. Yeah. It didn't get voted on. And uh, so I went back in the conference room. And um, in an hour and 15 minutes, negotiated all that to the point where we had an agreement. And then we took it to the floor uh, shortly after that. As soon as we got it drafted the next morning, then we took it to the floor. And uh, all but four Republicans voted for it. And I have to check. I think there was, uh, it was bipartisan. Mm-hmm. I don't remember how many Democrats. Not a lot, but some. Mm-hmm. So that's, those are, that's a bipartisan effort. That's working inside the conference. Mm-hmm. Farm bill was even more bipartisan. Mm-hmm. Those kind of things. See, none of that hit the news. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I hear, uh, you know, I hear that there's a partisan effort there, sometimes there is. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of bipartisan things that happen that don't make the news. The non-contentious things don't make the news. You know, that's good. To, I mean, that's a good story to hear because uh, most of the time what, uh, what we're fed is uh, you guys are all out there with bungee sticks whacking each other. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, I'm thinking American Gladiators. I don't, I've we felt have, the urge. I yes. absolutely felt the urge. Do you <laughs> do you remember American Gladiators? No. Okay. See the gen, the generator. Even those close generators are going by. Um, I'm the uh, I'm I'm the father of uh, three 13 year olds. Obviously, they're going they're going to oh, yeah. get to the age not too long from now when they will be able to say, hey, maybe uh, maybe the military is the way for me to go. Mm-hmm. Um, as as a parent, of course. I'm looking and say, I don't want them in Iraq. I don't want them to go off, you know, fight somebody else's war, you know, those kind of things. And I, and I say this as a, I'm sure there are a lot of parents that are worried about those, you know, about their kids that are going into the military. And obviously you go in the military knowing that you've you got that duty. So as a policymaker there up on the hill, you know, dealing with all these kind of things, you know, how do we keep from getting ourselves into uh, into more messes, or are we are we just stuck over there? Well, again, I can go back and tell you what went wrong in it. I think we talked about that last time you were here. And so, yeah. And uh, when, first out of, out of out of fairness, in uh, in the fall, actually November seventeenth of two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. Ryan Crocker, the ambassador, Bush's ambassador to Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, signed a status of forces agreement, uh, which essentially pulled our troops out of Iraq. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that come through, I went to the White House and pounded on the table. Said, mm-hmm. We should, we, we can't be pulling off all our bases and all our military out of Iraq. It mm-hmm. leaves them so vulnerable. This price has been paid. We've got to hold the ground that's there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the answer that I got was that that helped provide an open playing field so that President elect at the time, Obama, uh, would have an opportunity to negotiate his own terms there in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was, of course, President Obama and uh, Prime Minister Maliki didn't reach an agreement. President Obama's last proposal was, I'll keep 3,000 troops then in Iraq, but that's it. Mm-hmm. Maliki said, if, you, if you're only going to give me three, then take them all home because I'm not going to take the public criticism of being an occupied nation for only 3,000 troops. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Obama pulled everybody out of Iraq except 180 Marines. They abandoned five air bases. That were mm-hmm. there. And, of course, in doing so, it left Iraq vulnerable, and it made it very difficult for us to come in and defend them. Mm-hmm. Then uh, that was 2011. Then at the turn of the year, just last year, from Christmas or very, very early in last year, within the first week of last year, Prime Minister First, first week of this year, uh, 2014. So it'd be December of 13 or January of 14. Maliki came to, and, and asked and pleaded with Obama for air cover and air support because ISIS was invading and taking over cities, small cities, and border uh, border checkpoints mm-hmm. between Syria and Iraq, as he is starting to evade Iraq. And uh, President denied the air cover, mm-hmm. said no, and said, you know, essentially, Maliki, you need to go. Mm-hmm. Um, then, then ISIS stormed across the border shortly after that. They didn't get their air cover. They did not, whether they could or not, but they did not stop ISIS. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I said then, I'd already said in 2008, do not pull off of our bases over there. Well, we could have, when, when ISIS went in and invaded and occupied Mosul, I mean, who would have known the Iraqi army, 30,000 strong, was going to run from 800 to 3,000 ISIS troops. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but if we had had uh, maintained a presence on those bases, al-Assad, 200 miles west, we could have stopped 
anything from coming across that desert mm-hmm. from the air. Mm-hmm. And because we didn't, ISIS has now created their caliphate. Mm-hmm. And when uh, when they needed help and when President Obama spoke to this on June 13th, mm-hmm. he didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And so now we have these dinky airstrikes mm-hmm. that are, you know, they're not as effective as they need to be to stop mm-hmm. ISIS. And the Kurds are the ones doing the fighting. So here's the... Here's where I would go with this if it's me making this call. And uh, that is that I went ahead and supported the president on uh, training the funding and training the Free Syrian Army. Mm-hmm. That's a one-year endeavor for 5,000 troops, which there may not be any place to mm-hmm. defend by then. Mm-hmm. So that I did that because it's the one thing that the president seemed to be willing to do. Mm-hmm. And if we take that away from him, thinking mm-hmm. that there's a better alternative, President's likely, and my, I'm concerned, that the president would just simply say, well, if Congress won't let me train a free Syrian army, mm-hmm. then what can we do? We can't do anything because Congress has blocked him. Mm-hmm. He is a reluctant commander-in-chief. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd say let's go ahead and, and uh, fund and train the free Syrian army to identify our friends that are difficult. But the Kurds are our friends, mm-hmm. and we should pour all of the resources into them that they need in order to fight ISIS. And uh, I think that uh, and that means heavy weapons so they can take on American tanks that ISIS took over in Mosul mm-hmm. when the Iraqi army ran. And with, um, with, a strong, with a strong Kurdish military, with all of the weapons and the munitions that they can use, mm-hmm. and then to train them and to lead them, on the ground with special forces on the ground and having them calling in close air support and then um, I would have this done by now mm-hmm. and then the Kurds then will push ISIS out of northern and western Iraq mm-hmm. and they'll push ISIS out of northern Syria down towards towards Damascus mm-hmm. but the Kurds aren't going to go to Damascus and they're not going to go to Baghdad they'll go out to the limits of their tribal lines mm-hmm. and I think that might attract the Turkish Kurds to become mm-hmm. part of that, the Iranian Kurds to be part of that, well, I'm sure Erdogan isn't going to like that, and I'm sure that the mullahs in Iran are not going to like that. But I would, it would form an mm-hmm. independent nation-state in that part of the world that would be our friend, mm-hmm. and it would decimate ISIS, mm-hmm. and it would squeeze ISIS down against the free Syrian army, mm-hmm. and, you know, just north of the Damascus, squeeze ISIS down against that. I think there would be a chance to just, uh, just also use the word, annihilate uh, ISIS in that process, mm-hmm. and what would happen would be the Kurds would carve out their own country, a sovereign nation-state. And uh, I, I, a lot of that makes sense. I can, I, I can understand what you're saying. The, the question that comes back to me is, why is it worth it to me? Because I am the center of the universe. Got to remember that. Uh-huh. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's worth it because if we let this world go to the caliphate, the caliphate that's already established there is more dangerous to us mm-hmm. than the Al Qaeda training camps in Afghanistan that brought the September 11th, you know, the mm-hmm. hellfire down on us. So it's better to preempt than it is to react. Okay. I really want to appreciate. I really want to thank you for coming by. Um, I tried to come up with some some good conversation points. We always yeah. have good conversation when you, you come bet. by. So, um, are you? Uh, so now are you? Um, I suppose you got a really busy schedule now between now and uh, time you're going to go cast your vote down in, on Tuesday. It's pretty full. Okay. And then it's busy after that too. I've got two foreign trips going into those nasty parts in the world, 
Um, Where at? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into the Kurdish region and uh, into Ukraine, Moldova, a number of places up and down that way, probably back to Egypt. Mm-hmm. I've been going in and out of Egypt and dealing with them. So, you know, there's no, this, none of these are places where anybody wants to really go, mm-hmm. but we built relationships along there that I've got an obligation to follow through on. Mm-hmm. And especially when we have a president that is unwilling, we need to establish relationships so that the people that need to fight to defend themselves are willing. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that I have stressed in that part of the world and previous trips over there is that the president's not going to be the president forever. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a new president, so have faith the United States will come back around again. Mm-hmm. Um, now President el-Sisi in Egypt said to me that his relationship with Benjamin Netanyahu and Israel is stronger mm-hmm. than it is with Barack Obama in the United States. Okay. And that's true with several of those countries there. We've gone, our relationships with those countries have digressed mm-hmm. since the beginning, well, since the beginning of this administration. And I want to stitch them back together mm-hmm. because uh, if we don't, they will come and kill us. Mm-hmm. So let's strengthen the people that will be our allies in that part of the world. All righty. Okay. Well, sorry. thank you very much. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. Have you, uh, have you figured out who you're going to vote for on Tuesday? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it.